What's up? Welcome back. I'm Adam Stachowiak, and you are listening to Founders Talk. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and what it takes to build and run their business. Today, I'm joined by Zach Smith, co-founder of Packet and now running Equinix Metal. Zach and I talk about the early days of the internet infrastructure space, the beginnings of Packet, the why of Bare Metal, transitioning Packet from startup to global company overnight when they were acquired by Equinix, and how all this for him is 20 years in the making. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and they keep it simple. Get 1,000 credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics. And they often don't have the time expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem, not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. Well, Zach, welcome to Founders Talk. It's been, I would say, a bit coordinating this. Not quite the world record as you may desire to <laughs> coordinate getting on this show, but definitely a few reschedules, some on your part, some on my part, but hey, that's how it works out when you're busy. I'm sure you are. You've been very busy. It's all that traveling. I just, <laughs> I couldn't find time with all those airports I've been in. I bet. I bet. I guess, how you been? How you been since, what's interesting, I think, is that this acquisition for you with Packet to Equinix Metal and into the Equinix family was around essentially the pandemic time, right? Like it was, I think it just in January it was announced or yeah. talked of and then finalized in March. Yeah, we closed on March 2nd of uh, 2020, our transaction. So I officially became part of Equinix on that day. And then March 3rd, we closed all of our global offices and and that was that. So not how I expected to spend the uh, getting to know my 10,000 other colleagues time, but uh yeah, it's been kind of a trip. I could tell you that. 10,000 other colleagues. Is that true? I think it's a little more than that now. I think we're up to about 13,000 all in. But yeah, we've been growing pretty fast. So it's well over 10,000 at this point. And it's a little bit, but I think when we were acquired, Packet was like 130 or something. You know, you knew everybody's name, you knew their kids' names, you knew the pets' names, you knew all that stuff, right? And then suddenly, um, you're in the mix of, uh, you know, a much bigger ocean, which has uh, definitely been a challenge, but super fun at the same time. I think we probably have, I think we have more offices in more countries than we had people or something at, at Packet. <laughs> That's crazy. So 
there's a lot of different directions I, I want to go. And I do want to talk about that in particular, like this transition from startup essentially, sure, or literally startup, yeah, 100 people essentially to a much larger company. There's things I want to know about your journey. I want you to share as much about your background that makes sense to kind of get to where we're at. But the things I'm curious about is this journey of building Packet, which was bare metal servers, mm-hmm. kind of the opposite of what everyone else is doing around hosting companies, unless you're AWS. And in that case, you were building your own servers and building your own cloud. But you were offering bare metal servers ahead of its time, I would say, even so much as like, why? <laughs> you know, like, why would you do that? But clearly you knew why, because yep. <laughs> you know, you're where you're at, right? You saw the vision. A lot of people told me no. So uh, we had to we had to have a pretty strong reason why. So <laughs> yeah, along the way, I've been uh, super fortunate to be playing in the internet infrastructure space for I don't know, almost 20 years or a little over that. So um, I landed into the business kind of by happenstance. And actually, I think that's pretty pretty common in the world of cloud or, or, or internet infrastructure or hosting or whatnot. You don't go to school and like go through a comp sci thing and then end up racking and stacking servers in a data center, right? right? And so there's usually a story behind how everybody gets into this industry. Mine happened to be, I was, I was a Juilliard grad. I went to school for classical music and like most... Um, classical musicians, I I needed a real job. <laughs> and so just after I left school, I ended up working at a bank and I was working the 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. night shift doing PowerPoint work. And I had a lot of free time because the bankers usually wouldn't come around and I had access to the internet, but not much else. And I couldn't leave. And so I started thinking about how to start a business. And a family friend of mine, guy by the name of John LaRue, is the only guy I'd known who had ever started a business. My my parents were like in construction or education, things like that. So I didn't know much about starting a business, but I thought, okay, I'll call John. And he had started a a CLAC, a telecom company in the 90s when that was, you know, deregulated. And I said, hey John, you know, should I get into the uh into the phone business? And he's like, absolutely not. It's a terrible business. <laughs> um, but you should get into the recurring revenue business. Something where if you sell it once and you treat people well, the customers will keep paying you every month. And I said, well, what could that be? And so I started uh, reselling hosting to all of my musician friends, starting to you know put up homepages. Everybody needed a homepage. Is this in the CD Baby era? Yeah, man. This is GeoCities, you know, was still- So almost a Derek Siver story. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I could be, you know, the hosting company for classical musicians who needed a homepage. And so I started doing that. I found somebody online um, on webhostingtalk.com, you know, ping them about how to 2 a.m. in the morning, started posting. You can go look at there. It's pretty embarrassing. I think I spelled Linux wrong. And uh, started selling $20 a month hosting accounts to uh, managing, figuring out how to run that, things like that. Couple months in, I was doing pretty well. It turns out I was not bad at what do they say is if you know just slightly more than the other person, right? It's all you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> and so I knew slightly more than my musician friends about how to put up a homepage on the internet. And so that's how I got in the business. And, you know, I went up to this little town called Troy, New York, which is where my provider was based out of. And I thought I was going to meet some big company and, I wore a suit, you know, I did all this thing. Turns out it's just this guy named Raj and a couple of his college buddies who were, uh, had dropped out of RPI and they were running this hosting company because he had uh, worked for VA Linux the previous summer and came back like, Linux has taken over the world. We're going we're gonna to get into that. Anyways, we ended up becoming partners. And so I was, I was doing a lot of the selling and the op stuff down in New York and he was, you know, doing the engineering and whatnot. And we built one of the first cloud computing businesses. 
And Raj taught me a whole lot about how to think about software and open source. He runs a company called Grafana these days. Mm-hmm. You know, Big fan so of Raj. He's, he's kept with it. <laughs> so we kind of grew up in that in that internet infrastructure space, and um, it was super hard, and it was full of uh, you know self funded bootstrap. Nobody would give you money for this kind of weirdo business called, oh, no, 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 we're going to sell people on-demand access to computers with no contract, but don't worry, they're going to stay. <laughs> and um, and everybody's like, no, they're not. They're going to leave. I'm like, no, 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 they're going to stay. <laughs> Turns out that, you know, they do stay. Uh, you get them, you know, pretty addicted to that kind of stuff. So uh, we sold the business actually in 2011 to a publicly traded firm called Internap. And that was a really interesting process. We had raised some debt. 18 months before, we had brought in some outside leadership, mainly because Raj and I, we were like oil and water. We were kind of like, you know, mom and dad fighting in the corner. Like, and um, he's one of my best friends today, but we we were young and we had a hundred person company that we had bootstrapped and we're, you know, paycheck to paycheck and cash flow off of the Amex card and all the kind of things you could think about. Very stressful. It was stressful, but we also had just a a different style of working. And I, I used to think it was a, a real negative. I, in retrospect, it was a super positive. Raj was such a um, forward thinker. And that's actually a skill that I've had to really practice is thinking about the future. Well, Raj did that natively. He always was just like, wanted to go on long walks and talk about how it could be. And I was like, no, 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 we need to get back and do the thing that has, has to happen today. So we were just very different in those regards and young. And so we ended up bringing in an outside CEO um, to come help us. And then we sold the business kind of not on purpose, but, you know, somebody wanted to buy it and it had been a while and, you know, we, we, it was a pretty good exit. And, and uh, we had thought at the time that public clouds like AWS and related were going to go and kind of crush the hosting market. And um, we had thought like, hey, they can do databases, you know, they can do data centers, they can do the whole stack. And here we were just, we didn't own the data center. We didn't do the software. We we're just doing hosting. And we thought like, how is that going to compete Very against these big giants? Yeah. And so we thought it was a good time to sell. You know, I think in retrospect, it was maybe a little early. You never know, but it was the right time for us. And I vowed, and this is kind of the turn in the story. I vowed I would never get back. I told my wife, I'm like, that's it. I'm done with this whole like this whole internet thing. It's too hard. Like I gotta, this is going to be very competitive. It's like a a scale business. Like there's no way. And two years later, I was sitting at a a local bar here in lower Manhattan and my brother, Jacob, just, he's like, he got so sick of me bitching about, well, you know how it should be. You know why it could be this way. You know why we should do it this way. He's like, dude, Zach, we just got to start another hosting company. <laughs> and, um, and the idea was really that software was just eating the world. And why wouldn't it also eat the clouds? Right. And the, the concept that portable software, I was, I'd become friends with a guy named Alex Polvey and started CoreOS. You know, everybody, man. Wow. <laughs> he, was, he was at Rackspace before he had sold his company LibCloud to Rackspace. And so we were talking about portable software and I, he's like, no, nah, we're going to remake Linux, you know, because containers. And I'm like, what's this stuff? Right. And he was explaining it to me. And then I just kind of grokked that, wait, if you could ship your software anywhere and make increasingly complex systems out of like castles in the sky, right, <laughs> out of software, like, well, why why wouldn't infrastructure be a competitive place again? Like, why wouldn't there be a substrate called access the right thing at the right time? It's all cyclical, right? Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get into the hardware 
automated hardware for developers business and just bet that software is going to move really fast. And there was another, a neighbor of mine, I happened to, his son was on my kid's soccer team. So we're sitting here at each other. I'm telling him about to start this business. And turns out it's Dan Kahn who started CNCF. Wow. And he was just an incredible mentor and inspiration for me. And he just, he's like, no, we're starting this Linux foundation thing. It's about cloud native software that can go anywhere. And I'm like, I'm going to make really automated hardware so that way you guys can, we can meet in the, in the ether. And so that was the genesis for Packet. Mm. Little crazy idea, but you know, you had to think far enough out. You had to, you had to believe, you still have to believe actually that software is going to eat the whole thing. And that means that software can run anywhere and become increasingly, I'm going to call it easier to operate. I mean, maybe that's not the case right now. Like it is, I argue to myself sometimes like, wow, I can't like always spin up my own Kubernetes pod and keep up with all the things. But just think about how many people can run globally distributed workload now versus five years ago. That was like unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. That was like crazy stuff. And now it's like, oh, yeah, OK, like we can do that. No big deal. Yeah. So, I mean, like you have to like monitor it and do all these other things, but like do it right here in my house. On a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, you exactly. So like, it's pretty... <laughs> on several clusters. It's pretty incredible, the pace of software innovation. And so I kind of thought, okay, if software is going to get easier to operate in more places, there's got to be a way to connect that with the infrastructure, which is actually becoming more unique, not less. This whole like infrastructure as a commodity was such a... I mean, like, yes, it is, but only if it doesn't really matter that much to you. And then like, I use the analogy because I always carry around a commodity piece of infrastructure in my pocket all day long called an iPhone, <laughs> which is not a commodity at all. It's super special. And like when Tim Cook gets up and talks about the new iPhone, they talk about the processor. They talk about the the silicon that makes it go. And frankly, all the stuff that's happening in our life related to like talking at the walls and the 5G things and like, I don't know, like all the apps that magically do thing and tell me what's going on. Like that's not normal. That's special stuff where software and hardware come together. And so I kind of had this vision that, hey, if software is going to go do its thing, I actually kind of know how to do the other thing. We just have to upgrade and change it for a different customer who's never going to speak BGP to you or rack and stack servers and debug SFP optics. Like that's probably not going to be what they want to spend their time on. But they do want to touch the cool new processor and the machine learning card. Mm -hmm. So how do we get that to go? That was the idea. Hmm. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of tentacles there. Dan Kahn, Alex Polvey, yeah. Raj, as you mentioned, Dutt. Yeah. Had Raj on Founders Talk a little while back. He's actually due to come back on again because oh, nice. a lot of big stuff happening in Grafana land. So. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> He's got a juggernaut. I mean, open source business is like, wow. Raj has been trying to build open source monitoring and business for like the entire time I've known him. I just didn't understand it for the first 10 years. Which is crazy because there are just to glean on history a little bit. There will be some who look at Grafana and the recent raise to unicorn status, for example, mm. and think, wow, that came out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> or just like it was an overnight success, you know, and they won't see behind the scenes like this 20 year journey that you're privy to. Yeah. I mean, we were building monitoring. We, uh, when, first company voxel that raj started that i joined we had an open source platform for infrastructure operations like billing and device management and and monitoring because in the hosting world you used to, to give away free monitoring so that you could tell people that their host was up online like that was your job to like do the monitoring 
And it was just such an interesting paradigm. And I remember actually a conversation with Raj and Alexis from Datadog in our offices here in New York. And we're, we were like arguing over giving away monitoring, which is what we had to do for hosting. And he was like, no, no, no we can charge for monitoring. <laughs> and there was this big argument between um, Raj and, and Alexis. I mean, it was an argument. It was more like a... Which is interesting too. Yeah, those two. Yeah, of course. And Alexis was like, well, you have to make monitoring that isn't awful. And we're like, oh, fair point. <laughs> okay, right. Sure. But it's kind of fascinating that like how incredible Datadog has done in terms of giving observability as a SaaS platform to like millions of developers and how Raj has built free monitoring and then create a great business with it. So there's observability as an open platform. So, you know, some things never change. Yeah. I actually have a, an internet pie on my network where I have essentially an internet monitor to keep my internet provider honest. Is it really? And, and so the dashboard is Gravana. I don't pay them for it. No. It's open source. Yeah. Got your mind share though. You know, you know all about Grafana and love it. Right. Running on Kubernetes in a Docker container. It's a crazy world. I think the most fascinating thing that I can like learn out of all this time at being in the cloud space, which has been super fun, an incredible ride. And I've been thinking about it a lot here at Equinix, which we'll get to like I guess at some point. But one of the most fascinating things for me is that in cloud, it was the first real B2B business that had platform-led growth, right? Where you signed up, you used it. If you liked it, you used more, you get stuck, you adopt, and then you get sold to. Like later, you buy it, like in Negotiate or whatever. And SaaS companies like Datadog also similar. But then I think open source, B2B open source, is that kind of next phase where the cost of like, for example, of ranked order and priority, the cost of getting to your market in an legacy, I'm going to call it legacy enterprise software business where you had to hire a bunch of salespeople, you built the product and you had to knock on all the doors and you had to sell them the software, right? They had to want to buy it. And that was a really, really, really expensive thing to go and get your software into the market. And then came the cloud where it was like, no, just sign up and try it, right? SaaS. Okay, try it. Cool. So you lowered the cost of finding your market because you're like, you don't have to go out there and sell it to you and install it and whatnot. It'll just come try it. It's all good. Free trial. Okay. I think open source just took that to another level because way early on, even before you had a product, you find product market fit. And as soon as it hits, which took years, right? Like in the Grafana, took years to get product market fit. Yeah. But man, it finds itself through the littlest tiny score because the distribution cost is nothing. And then once it does, there's this really cool thing called infrastructure everywhere and oh hey you don't want to run that software for i'll run it for you that's a business model now right and so SaaS becomes or open SaaS, i think is a really cool way to think of monetizing so it's like from a business model perspective i think there's just some structural advantages that open source businesses have SaaS had structural advantages over enterprise software right and i just think open source has that next wave of structural advantages Let's chase this a little bit then. If you weren't doing what you do now with Equinix, if you weren't knee deep in this journey and you can eject this moment, not like giving up anything, but just, you know, copy Zach. Find my alter ego, put on my... Zach version two or something like that. And just like <laughs> make a Zach two, like multiplicity or something like that. What would you do? Clone repo? Yeah. Wait, my parents already did that. I have a twin brother. Shoot. Okay. <laughs> <Take> <laughs> Fork repo. Okay. 
What business would you be in if you weren't in the business you're in now? Well, I'm super interested in the shift that's undergoing related to, and and I'll have to tell you, like I'm addicted to like cool ideas, and I'm always thinking about you know new stuff. We're talking to different founders or investing them if I can afford to, or doing other kinds of stuff. But like I love new things and thinking about where it all might be or how could it be. The topic that I think about a lot these days has to do with that buyer adoption and persona issue that I see right now in in, in sales, right? Because the go-to-market motion of of like Salesforce, where you got to qualify people out so you only focus on the ones that matter, who are ready to buy, you know, and the whole marketing machine that drives leads towards that funnel, and then you trim it down to the point where you get down to a negotiation. The way that I see the highest growth companies work these days, like Datadog or whatever, is the opposite. It's like, invite everybody in. Don't restrict the funnel. Widen it, right? Free trial, easy access, sign up now, get going, free, download, open source, whatever. Wide, 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 wide. A long phase of adoption that can be very, very differential in terms of its pace. It can move very quick or it could take very long. And then eventually, some sort of buying signal where the customer buys it, right? Because they want to subscribe, they want to have, they want more, or they raise their hand and be like, I need something that's not normal. You know, I need negotiated. My work for Big Co and we need this like sock two thing of a jigger or whatever it is, right? And I think that the tooling behind, let's call it product-led or developer-led growth models is just so different versus sales-led growth models. So like the whole infrastructure around comp and sales tooling and revenue and billing and all the things that are done in arrears in a sales-driven model, because the time to value and the, and the process is so long, they get flipped on their head and suddenly all the back office stuff becomes the front office. Like pricing is in the website, like pricing is there where you can consume it. Usage models have to be real time because those are the adoption signals that tell you if it's worth engaging with people. Like all that stuff gets backwards. So to me, that's one of the most fascinating areas that we kind of like randomly ran into in the cloud, which is like, if you talk to most cloud people, like I'm sure you're like call Ben at DigitalOcean or, you know, talk to, like probably built their own billing systems. They probably built their own like CRM. They probably built all their own stuff for these user-led adoption models, which the whole kind of sales infrastructure wasn't capable of supporting. And I find that fascinating because I think that's just happening in more and more places and that's going to shift. So I would probably be spending time on that. So you'd be building the sales software systems that they all built themselves. You'd build the one that everybody uses? I think I would build tooling that allowed product-led like founders to supercharge their go-to-market and not like when they get to their Series B, like import sales leader who's like, oh, we have to shift everything to Salesforce and use Marketo and stop all this amazing thing that got you to your Series B. We got we to gotta install a real sales team. I think that that's false. Mm. <laughs> I think that leaning in and allowing to accelerate product-led growth while still having things like good control of your numbers and like bigger teams and like GDPR compliance and, you know, contract management. These things are, matter, but, you know, in enterprise billing problems, these things all matter. But in a product-led growth, I think it just could be like, we don't have those things right now. Let's put it that way. Mm. <laughs> At least when I talk to founders and I talk to other companies, everybody struggles with that. And so I think there's a unique opportunity. That's where I would play. Yeah. At some point you get serious about sales, essentially. Like you, you've done something that has attracted, but then you install a sales team and it gets. Yeah. 
And then your growth model gets all wanky, right? Because like what worked for you in your growth before, suddenly it's like, oh, but now we need to expand and move faster and talk to bigger companies. Like, like, I don't know. I think there's a more continuum there. And I think the concept of like quick install Salesforce and move to a pipeline model is like, I don't believe it. Mm. (laughs) You'd mentioned back in the day with Raj, you were leading sales. Have you always been in the sales front, the business side front, the make it fit with the customer economically, et cetera? Has that always been your spot? Well, interestingly enough, when I was working with Raj, I didn't really run the sales. I really ran operations, which we might call these days customer success. (laughs) And so in a way, I was doing sales, I was doing growth. And I love being out with customers. It's one of my favorite thing to do is just talk to customers and understand what they love, what they hate. You know, I think that's one of the coolest things at being at a small startup is that you can't hide from the customers, right? If you've ever read Jeff Lawson's book, you know, ask your developer, it's like, get in the seat, you know, answer support calls, because then you'll really know the product pain. Then you'll really know what people love and hate. So I've always tried to do that is be close to the customers. But I wasn't really in a, in a, like a sales role at, at, at Voxel. But once I started Packet, that was really what I did. Number one, selling the vision, like why we were doing this. And I think building a strong story and evangelizing that was something not only that I was passionate in, but it was actually my job. And my brother, Jacob, is a marketer and a great storyteller. And he, he's been an awesome partner in really pushing that and pushing me to do more of that. And then, of course, you know, leading more of the revenue side when you're the kind of CEO of the company and you're like salesperson in chief in some way, shape or form. And then, frankly, like selling to investors. Our Series B took 52 52 no's to get a yes, man. So I was was on the road selling. Wow. (laughs) Selling the dream. Yeah. I mean, so then you got to be selling the dream to have runway, to have the funding to have runway to build the dream. Yeah. You also have to lead, right? So you have people inside the company that's got to look up to Zach and say, Zach's got it together, you know? <laughs> Do you find the CEO role being a lonely role? Is that your experience or what, what's your experience with the role? Yeah, well, I've been really lucky to always have great co-founders who can empathize. Not everybody can go through being a startup founder. It's hard. Lonely is not exactly the word I would use, but it can be isolating yeah. in certain ways. But I've always been lucky to have some great co-founders along. Yuraj is a great founder and partner and loved, you know, cared so much about what he was building and the people he was doing that for. And so we both shared that. And the same thing at Packet. But I would say that um, it has a different set of pressures on it. And not everybody's cut out for it. And one of the things that I've really, I really wanted to do with Packet was build a better company. Something that, hey, I learned some stuff about myself and I learned some stuff about what works and not. Well, how could I do that better as a personal challenge? And so I started with Packet. We used a, a framework called EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. And it's basically just a framework on how to build and run companies. And I followed that and it worked really well for me. And that, that kind of helped make sure that you really looked co-founders and early employees in the eye and said, you know, is this the right person, the right butt, in the right role, right seat, at the right time of their life? Are you ready to do it? Because being a startup founder is like all in. It's not kind of in or usually in or except on the weekends. It's like all in, whatever it takes. 
And once you get that going and maybe you raise capital or you convince, you're constantly convincing people to join you, suddenly it's like, man, these people and their kids' tuition is built on, you know, or like even just their like rent is built on whether we do well or not. And I'll maybe like, like guarantee, but like, I got to live up to that. Like I got to look these people in the eye and say like, I did everything. And so making sure you're with the right group of people who align with the same vision that you, and then also have those, this in EOS is people analyzer, right? Right butt, right seat at the right time of their life. And I think that's really important. And that helped me. I can totally look back and look back. Wow, that was the right person in the right seat, but in the wrong time, Mm -hmm. like they were just not ready. They had like four kids and two mortgages and this and that and that, whatever, and weren't willing to like, they couldn't do it. That was too much pressure for them. Or, you know, other things that maybe with, you know, got to support their, you know, wife and who was starting something or their husband who was doing something, you know, like it just depends. And so I think being honest about that has helped make sure that expectations were clear around founder groups because you can't do it on your own. Like, it's too much, especially these days, right? Like it's so competitive and it's hard and it's moving so fast in technology space in particular. It's just things move fast and living up to that is, is difficult. This episode is brought to you by PlanetScale, the database for developers. PlanetScale is the only serverless database platform. You can start an instant and scale indefinitely with unlimited connections. The premise is simple. Never think about database servers again. The PlanetScale platform is based on MySQL and Vitesse, which power Slack, Square, GitHub, YouTube, and more. Everything you want to control is available through the beautifully designed PlanetScale CLI, including their data branching feature, which is the first MySQL platform to allow you to create non-blocking schema changes and integrate your schema changes with your CI/CD processes. PlanetScale is the last database you'll ever need. Learn more and start your database in seconds at planetscale.com. Again, planetscale.com. And by our friends at Fast, they're running a massive promo on Compute at Edge. They're inviting our entire listener base to move latency-sensitive workloads to the edge with Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. This is a limited time offer, so head to Fastly.com slash podcast as soon as you can to check it out and get all the details. Here's the TLDR. Fastly's edge cloud network and modern approach to serverless computing allows you to deploy and run complex logic at the edge with unparalleled security and blazing fast computational speed. Scale instantly and globally, reduce origin load, get real-time observability, and get seamless integration with your existing tech stack. Head to fastly.com slash podcast to get Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. Once again, fastly.com slash podcast. Can you speak to the pace of packet prior to Equinix Metal, Equinix? How many people at the beginning? When was the beginning? How fast did you ramp? Were you always involved in the hiring? Were you personally involved? How's that work for you? 
Yeah, well, we started in 2014, July. We started relatively small, a couple people, me, Jacob, Aaron, a guy named Aaron Welch, and um, a few original technical founders. And we started with a small seed round that we put in with some friends and family and said, we're going to figure out if we can get to the end of the year. Because infrastructure is an expensive business. Not only do you have to fund like doing the work and the software, you have to like buy stuff. Right? <laughs> so we'd like buy stuff. And so we started that. And, you know, I think by the, when we got our first kind of product in the market and what I, I remember, cause it was, it was like January of 2015 when we finally like had something that you could consume. And so we like really compressed lean startup, six month kind of thing, right? Ramen noodles, you know, late nights, et cetera, et cetera. And we finally got it out and, you know, we're working off of fumes by that point and, you know, just trying to see if we could prove that, that we could do this, right? And we finally got it out. I remember one of our first customers, a guy named Mitchell, shows up on our website <laughs> and signs up for HashiCorp. And he's like, this is cool. I can deploy automatic bare metal with an API. I'm like, that's exactly what we're doing. That was really <laughs> validating. I was like, this is amazing. This guy's great. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I was like close to all that. And then like just recruiting that initial stage of not only the people who are willing to take a gamble on this like very polar opposite thing called build an automated infrastructure company in the time of the public clouds who were dominating, like you had to like really believe in this. So doing that and getting the first few people going and, and really, you know, built off of that. And then, like I said, doing that people analyzer so you could build leadership really quickly. And so to answer your question, yes, I was involved. Usually I would interview every person, not interview, because we had pretty strong value system that we had to read. We had to read like our mission statement to you before you wanted to just to make sure like we're out here to build a better internet. And what that means for us is this. Yeah. And if this is not how you feel about it, like these are your core values, then like maybe this isn't the right thing. Cause you know, often it's really hard to interview people and whatnot. So you got to like align on values and then like, of course you can move into skill sets and whatever. So having that done yeah. allowed us to be in the point, my job in the process was usually not to hire somebody out there recruiting. It was to like, get that alignment at the end of the process. Like, all right, do you want it? Do you believe in it? Do you follow the same core values that we do? If so, what questions can I answer? Right. Because otherwise, like, we're going to get to the right answer. If you we all believe in this and have the right values, like we want to do this together, then cool. So that was my job in the hiring scheme. And then, you know, we grew, I'd say like the first two years, it was pretty good. We got a series A backed by SoftBank. That was kind of a wild ride. Probably don't have enough time for that conversation. And Michael Dell backed us through Dell Tech Capital. And so that was cool. We had a little bit more money, grew the team. And frankly, we just, we built it through a, a strong brand, which was, we didn't think that we could be known by everybody. But if you had passion about automating fundamental hardware, we wanted everybody to know that. And that's what we did is like, if you believed in it as much as we did, cool. Right. So like t-shirt API, like hidden HTML on all of our pages that talked about where to buy, like crazy t-shirts that talked about, you know, rack and stack 19 inch rails because only they would get it. <laughs> and those were our ways to, you know, do that. And we threw a crazy conference in Las Vegas called IFX in a parking lot and it rained. Of course it rained. We did it again the next year, it rained again. Like the like, only time it rains in Las Vegas is when we put in an outdoor event in Las Vegas, but we had like a hardware petting zoo. It's like, come touch the hardware. Wow. And so we attracted people in that way. 
And so I think we were really lucky and fortunate on having shared value system with most of our employees who had a strong passion and desire to work on the similar things that we wanted to work on. My job was to make sure we had enough money to see that through, <laughs> right? And customers, you know, who also like valued what we did because there was a lot of gaps that they had to fill in along the way. Mm-hmm. We had raised a series B later with Third Point and Samsung and Battery Ventures, a couple other people. And then right before we were out to raise a Series C is when um, Equinix stepped in and decided that they wanted to automate their data centers. So that's where we ended up. Wow. I have a, an interesting history that I'm, I'm like super passionate about rack and stack, 19-inch rails. I would totally get that <laughs> now, but I wouldn't have gotten it back in the day. Cage nuts, man. Like <sighs> Break your fingers, your thumbs. Yeah, for sure. Your fingers, exactly. <laughs> I dig that stuff. Like there's nothing that... Uh, I would love to not so much build. I just, I guess that's where I find my side passion, I guess, maybe sure. if that's a thing. Cause it's, I'm, I, would, I don't do it for a day job, obviously, but I do it for the fun. Right. Cause I find it very fun. Some people throw clay and you want to like get your cabling right. That's right. I want to rack and stack and, and, and I want to <laughs> build out Linux servers and do fun things like that just cause it's, I want to have a reason to, you know, basically. But uh, it's funny because in 2000, Four or five, I worked for an IT company. Mm-hmm. It was my very first kind of like IT focused job. I didn't go to school for anything I know in software development or front end. You know, that's my story. Like I didn't go to school for any of this stuff. Yep. I was at the right place at the wrong time. Okay. At least on that part of my journey, there was a really good part that I was there for the right reasons. Mm. But for the IT part of it, I wasn't, I didn't understand Linux. I didn't understand servers. We were doing Citrix installs and stuff like that and rolling WatchGuard in our co-located data center. We did all the cool stuff, but I didn't understand what I was around then what I know now, which is kind of interesting, but I have a a big passion for just playing with hardware. Well, if you ever want to go to data centers, we have some seriously cool data centers. Let me tell you about that. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) And lots of cool hardware. (laughs) You know, and that's the... That's an interesting thing, I think, with with your business is like, you know, I don't want to go away from what we were just talking about there, which was this clarity that you provided this when people came into packet prior to Equinix, obviously when they came into packet, you were super clear about who you were and what your mission was. Absolutely. But I think the thing there is like, is people don't understand is that people gel around beliefs. Like if you believe what I believe, if we have shared beliefs, then we can go places together. We can go places. We can build stuff. If we have misaligned beliefs, that means we don't have shared minds shared. doesn't mean that we're, you're a bad person. I'm a bad person. It just means that we don't believe in the same directions of life or whatever it might be. But when you have an alignment of shared beliefs, that is like the most BA CPU in a, in a, <laughs> in a server ever. You know what I mean? Like it's, that's everything. It's so important in startups because you haven't figured it out. You don't know the how, you know, the why and like, why are we doing this? And then you'll figure out the how, which will probably change. You might even change the what. Like, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying, like, for example, the mission of Packet, beyond a very high-level one that we put on our T-shirts called Build a Better Internet, was that we wanted to connect the world's developers to the technology, no matter where it was, no matter what it was, and no matter what you wanted to build on it. That was the what. Like, we were like, you know what? We believe that software is going to be portable and free and innovation happens. Magic happens when you put the right hardware and the right software together. We want to do our job to make that better. And how we were going to do that, like, turned out to be a bare metal cloud. That's actually wasn't the main vision. The main vision was like, be the best bare metal cloud in the world. 
right? It was, it was not that. It was like, get technology in a sustainable way out to the developers of the world so they can create magic. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what we wanted to do. Was the what a surprise to some degree then? Well, I think we, we had a lot of like along the way, ticks and tacks. And I remember like deep arguments, like in 2015 and 16, where some of my partners and colleagues and customers were like, you need to build load balancing as a service. Like people just need load balancers. And I was like, nope, software will handle it. I was like, how can we support another automated BGP project for this Kubernetes thing? Ah, ah there's this cool thing, Metal LB, it just works. Let's do it, let's like fund it. You know, like how can we make those things happen, right? But there was a lot of people like, we should build database service, you know why? Because databases are hard. And I'm like, no, but that's not our mission. Our mission is not to like solve the world's database problems. Our mission is to connect software with hardware. That's our job. How can we do that and just be the best at that thing? And through the years, some people left the company because they didn't believe in those things in the end. They're like, no, 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 no. We should be building an IaaS later. We should be building, you know, a database as a service. I'm like, I know that's not what we're going to do. That's not the vision. And so that belief, I think, held through in a lot of good ways. And the, the what changed several times. And I even say the what is changing here at Equinix and frankly, getting more aligned with with my original thesis than ever, which is as a distribution and operating model for technology versus like the bare metal hosting company, which is really cool to see. And I, and I would say like getting back to like what worked in a startup and why Equinix was a great place for us because that was not a like foregone conclusion at all. Mm. But Charles is the CEO of Equinix, Charles Myers, great guy. Also, if you go to Equinix's website, like they have an extremely clear and crisp value statement. Right. And it's about what does it mean for, as the world's digital infrastructure company, our job is to be a neutral place for the internet to live. Right. So people can do and create great things through interconnection and connectivity. It's not like have the most data centers. <laughs> and so I think that like we align really well on those topics. And I've seen a lot of those same practices, which has made Equinix successful. You can use them at a smaller level at a startup, like even more important. I think at a startup where you're, if you hire one person wrong, that's 20% of your staff, you know, like, oops, that's a big miss, right? Yeah. So getting that right at the beginning and, you know, we spent, oh man, we spent days locked up in a room writing our values, which ended up being a elevator pitch that everybody could say on demand and five core values and a single like product promise. And that took us long. We didn't change it for like five years, mm. but we reevaluated every quarter to see if it felt. The same and we're like oh still feels pretty good was that your guiding <laughs> rudder in many ways because i feel like we've got a couple of those and every time i i could share a few with you they're just more like operating things than it is product load it's more like slow and steady wins if you're going too fast slow down and check yourself like mantras to live by right yeah just like these are sort of like like if you believe that then then you'll be successful working with us because you're not going against the grain. You know what I mean? Like it's totally, you know, if you're, you're pushing too fast, we can't follow that fast. We're just more into slow and steady, keeping the main thing. The main thing is, is another one for us mm. far too often. It's hard to find your main thing. And then once you do, you get so distracted by all the possible yeses that lead you to right. the no's you never say. And then you're saying yes to too many things. And the way you focus is not by saying yes, it's by saying no a lot. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's fascinating about building startups and building companies. And I would say that the other thing that I learned in the journey of Packet, we did a management memo. We started very early with, <laughs> I had this very frustrating experience when Raj and I sold Voxel because 
we weren't data room ready. Like we had built a business, we had kind of like didn't understand full P&Ls and all that stuff along the way. And then when we got in and sold, we sold to a public company, it was rather painful for us, right? And so I was like, you know what I'm going to do is when I start a new company, I'm going to make it like really buttoned up from the beginning. I want to make sure that like we're, we're good. And I started this thing where we would write a management memo at the 10th of every month. We close out the month. We started from July of 2014 when our month was only like two weeks. And we wrote kind of a a letter to ourselves and it was to our investors at some, you know, and other people and eventually to our whole company because we're a very transparent company. So we shared everything except personal salary details with throughout the company. And that served as a, like a record for us to really, because other thing that happens in a startup from my experience is time goes by really fast because you're doing so much. And then four months later, you look back and you're like, oh, wow, that seemed like a long time ago. Did we really think that we were going to do that? You know, or like, is that really what we thought, you know, four months ago? Yeah. And uh, you kind of got this like selective amnesia, right? And so we wrote these management memos that kind of outline state of the business, key metrics, what do we do, what do we accomplish, whatever. And we shipped them every single month. That kind of rigor that was super easy at the beginning, it only took us like an hour. We copied a Google Doc, you know, filled it out, did it, shipped it to ourselves, whatever. That muscle memory became so important throughout the company. And yeah, our history. And then in the end, when we went to go do those 52 pitches, I would love when, you know, a VC on Sand Hill or something would be like, well, send me all your diligence. I'm like, nope, I want to send you my last one year of management memos. And if you like what you see on how we actually build stuff and handle problems, then we'll talk further. And that turned out to be like, helped me a lot in terms of time, right? Like I didn't have to go and like go into a diligence process where somebody just sniffed me forever, you know? And so my other big takeaway was that Half of the battle, I feel like, obviously, you got to figure out product fit. You got to make sure that you build an awesome thing that people love. You got to make sure to build a community or an ecosystem that is inclusive and, you know, appropriate and aligned with your values. And then you just have to run a good company, right? Which it sounds easier than you think, right? And a lot of this is just keep good records, count your metrics, run good meetings, hire and fire do the stuff of running a good business, especially if it's in line with something like, we want to have a a global remote work policy, which is we were a remote first company. Like, okay, what's it going to take to do that? Like, okay, we got to learn how to hire and fire in all these countries around the world. Well, that could become a major drain when you're actually scaling and the business is going well. So you got all these problems come out of the woodwork because you have an institutionalized muscle memory around just running the company. And that was the other thing that I kind of learned at Packet was how important that was and how impactful it could be to allow you to focus your time on the thing that matter, which is like the customers Mm -hmm. and the product and your vision versus on the muck of running the company, which you got to do. Yeah. And as CEO, you got to do all those things. You know, you got to, you're responsible, right? If the, if the rudder falls off, the ship fails or something happens and you're in an iceberg, you know what I mean? Like, you know, metaphorically, yeah. it's your fault. I had a bullseye that I put up on my wall and now it's just in my, I guess, my visual mantra, which is a bullseye means like, you've got this like situation. I've got time in a day as CEO or as a manager or founder or whatever. And at that time, you've got the outer ring, which was the things that are super urgent, but not at all important. And then you got the middle part of the bullseye, which is the stuff that's urgent and important. Wow, my biggest customer called and he's having an outage. We really need to fix that. And then you got the bullseye, which is the stuff that's totally not urgent, but super important. 
How are we going to win the market next year? How do we get that key employee who's interested and go recruit? Where do we go for that partnership that I might need to start developing? Like I should call that person again. And, and those are the things that like you never, as the business gets big and there's stuff and there's customers, there's a special time at the beginning of a startup where you don't have any customers, you don't have any revenue. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Because you can just think about the bullseye stuff. How do we build this right thing? How do we go in the future? What do we do? You know, you can do all that stuff. But then as the business starts to come around you and, and be successful or grow, you got all this stuff in the outer ring that hits you in the face all day long. We need this. Well, this has to get paid. What's going on with that? That customer, you know, blah, 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 noise, whatever. It's noise. It needs to be done, but it's just not important in the grand scheme of things. And so figuring out how you can organize, I think, as a CEO around how do you get 10, 20, 30% of your time in that bullseye, that's going to make a difference. If you spend most of your time and you recognize that you're spending all of your time, you go to bed, and at the end of the day, you're like, shoot, I spent like 100% of my time in the outer rings, something is wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you got to figure out how as a leader, you are maniacally delegating, empowering other people, figuring out how you let some stuff drop on the floor so that you can make sure you get some of that bullseye time. You know, that has to happen every day. That's my trick. Some people do it like mm-hmm. once a week. Some people do an offsite. Some people are just good at that. Like Raj is great at that. He's always good at hitting the bullseye and he can like tune out everything else. I can't. I'm like an inbox zero guy. So I have to figure out how to get rid of it in a way that allows me to focus on the middle. How do you define what should be in the middle? Is that something that's sort of unique to everybody? I think it is. Or is there like particulars that, that you just know of that are for sure in the middle? I think if you look back on your day today and you're like, how do I spend my time? And I was, a, like I said, before I got into this whole computers on the internet business, I was a musician. And you become pretty self-critical being a, a musician because you got to, like any kind of artist or sports or something, you know, like you got to be willing to take criticism, think about that criticism yourself so you can get better. So I like to like think back at the end of the day or whatnot, what I do. And if you look at spending your time and you're like, well, I just responded to a whole bunch of emails you're going to find pretty quickly that you're like, yeah, it's kind of in the outer run. Is it really going to make or break this business if I respond to that or not? Or did, I mean, maybe I need to, but like, did that really do move this thing meaningfully forward? The hard one is this is like, in my opinion, not the outside ring. Outside ring is easy. You can pretty much tell in your life, whatever it is, or in your, in your role, what is kind of like super urgent, but not really that impactful. And the hard part for me is differentiating between the middle and the bullseye. Because a lot of the times that middle can seem like it's the most important stuff. I like to think out two to three years. How do I think out the big impactful stuff two or three years from now? What do I need to be doing now to impact down the road? That's where I, I say is a bulls, I think. If it's anything that's going to happen like mm-hmm. three, four, five months, it's probably not that. I should have already been doing it kind of thing. And so just throw that football out and think about something that's not the now. I had a mentor, a guy named Bill Luby at Seaport Capital. He always told me, when we started Packet, he's like, you're so lucky. You have no customers and no revenue. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you just get to think about the future all day long. Second, you have all this other stuff. You have to think about the now and what just happened. You were so fortunate just to be able to dream about the future. So all your brain cycles are on that. Yeah. I was like, that's really cool. <laughs> that's what I try and do is keep a little bit of that future imagination that's not bounded by all the problems of the day or challenges of the end cycle that we have to do or the backlog of all the thingamajiggers and be like, you know what? We should like totally change the whole infrastructure for how the go-to-market sales stuff works because like maybe it could be better. That would be like 
lots of people around you might be like, no, it'd be too much work. Right. And you have to be like, I don't know, maybe we could. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how you got there in the first place, right? Like by, like you said, pre-customers, pre-revenue, all you were doing was dreaming up the future of what it could be. And then suddenly you get in this mix and you have no contemplation time. You ever think about that word very often? Contemplation. Like that's a, a word I oh, yeah. I learned from uh, John Daniel Trask. He's the CEO, co-founder of hmm. Raygun out of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. He was on Founders Talk as well. I Talking to him changed my life. Like just the way he looks at biographies of like Bill Gates and others, like the way he learned from Cornelius Vanderbilt, like the earliest entrepreneurs. Right. And like back in these days, they didn't have iPhones that distracted them and all these different <laughs> things. Like they just, all they had was, they had to like send somebody days to go send a message to their right. front line or whatever it might've been. You know what I mean? Like it was a different world. Yeah. We don't have that contemplation time. You have to carve it, defend it. Yeah. And I think that's probably pretty challenging is how do you, what are some of the things you can do as a CEO? Do you just simply hire and delegate to get that contemplation time? What are some of the things you do to, to know, one, know it's important and two, carve it out and make sure it's there? Well, you probably wouldn't be a founder of a, of a business if you didn't have that muscle somewhere, right? right. You're like, oh, you know what we should do is start this crazy company and go raise money and build something that nobody else has done before. You know? And so I think naturally founders have a muscle in there and you just have to kind of find your your style, just like going to the gym, you know, like that's my way. It doesn't happen naturally for me. And that's what I learned from Raj. I really need to carve time for it. So for me, it's a purposeful exercise that I have to do is, you know what, like for me, I put on music, I listen to certain kind of music and I think about, I go on runs. That's where I think about the crazy stuff, the things that I'm not needing to do today. And I have to switch my brain into that. So I think it's about just finding your way and systematizing that so that when things get busy at a company, uh, which they will, (laughs) whether it's going good or going bad, it'll get busy and you'll be in the middle of it all. That will help you. And then delegation for me has always been really important, super challenging because I like to be involved. Some people call that controlling. I like to be involved, but delegating and knowing and and ensuring that you get good at that, also really important, especially when you're scaling a company. This episode is brought to you by Gitpod. Gitpod lets you spin up fresh, ephemeral, automated dev environments in the cloud in seconds. And I'm here with Johannes Landgraf, co-founder of Gitpod. Johannes, you recently opened up your free tier to every developer with a GitLab, GitHub, or Bitbucket account. What are your goals with that? Thanks, Adam. As you know, everything we do at Gitpod centers around eliminating friction from the workflow of developers. We work towards a future where ephemeral, cloud-based developer environments are the standard in modern engineering teams. Just think about it. It is 2021 and we use automation everywhere. We automate infrastructure, CICD build pipelines, and even writing code. The only thing we have not automated are developer environments. They are still brittle, tied to local machines and a constant source of friction during onboarding and ongoing development. With Gitpod, this stops. Our free plan gives devs access to cloud-based developer environments for 50 hours per month. 
Companies such as Google, Facebook, and most recently GitHub have internally built solutions and moved software development to the cloud. I know I'm biased, but I can fully relate. Once you experience the productivity boost and peace of mind that automation offers, you never want to go back. Gitpod is open source, and with our free tier, we want to make cloud-based development available for everyone. Very cool. All right, if this gets you excited, learn more and get started for free at gitpod.io. Again, gitpod.io. And by our friends at Fastly, they're running a massive promo on Compute at Edge. They're inviting our entire listener base to move latency-sensitive workloads to the edge with Compute at Edge, free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. This is a limited time offer, so head to Fastly.com slash podcast as soon as you can to check it out and get all the details. Here's the TLDR. Fastly's edge cloud network and modern approach to serverless computing allows you to deploy and run complex logic at the edge with unparalleled security and blazing fast computational speed. Scale instantly and globally, reduce origin load, get real-time observability, and get seamless integration with your existing tech stack. Head to Fastly.com slash podcast to get Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. Once again, Fastly.com slash podcast. Let's go deeper into packet than Equinix because you mentioned the seed round, you mentioned Series A, Series B, and then yep. Series C was when Equinix came knocking. Is that right? Is that did I remember correctly? Mm-hmm. The acquisition was three hundred some million dollars, I believe. I'm curious about the details. How do you think about that? Other questions I have, and I'm just kind of giving you sort of a, a shotgun approach because you can take us any direction you want. I'm curious about how you thought about running packet to an acquisition. Were you considering an acquisition? Did you? Were you thinking, well, we'll be acquired eventually? Or were you building a company that you can run independently from acquisition? You know, how did you handle that step forward from Series B to Series C that wasn't really a Series C, it was an acquisition? Yeah, I don't believe you can like build companies to be acquired. I think that's pretty hard to do. You have to be genuine about a business that you're building and the sustainability of that. But I always did feel that we were going to partner some way or shape or form with real estate. I knew that some way we had to get access to lower cost capital for infrastructure deployment with global reach. And so I spent a lot of time with telcos. One of our biggest customers was Sprint. That's why we took our most of our money from strategics like SoftBank and Dell. These were aligned strategic partners who had kind of global reach and access to capital that was useful for infrastructure. Spent a lot of time with different REITs everything from data center REITs to cold storage REITs to, you know, you name it, right? Tower REITs. We were spending time with people with distribution and it wasn't the guy like, oh, you could buy us. But I was thinking like, we're going to need to partner and and reach a much bigger distribution scale to achieve our vision somehow. Mm -hmm. And so we were always looking for that. And uh, I think that that, you know, when we, we had actually partnered with Equinix to some degree, and that's how they, the whole conversation started between us, because our vision was so aligned with where Charles and, and that team wanted to go. That kind of like occurred, but it wasn't exclusive. We were working with all kinds of people to try and advance that vision. But I think that was an important kind of inflection because like timing is hard to call in startups. We had an extremely capital intensive business. And 
effectively think of every single one of our customers was offloading their capital requirements to us. And those customers were getting bigger and bigger and they wanted to do more and more and more and more places. And so we were really needing it after our Series B. Uh, it was led by a, a third point, which is um, Dan Loeb's venture side of his third point, I think private equity firm or something. And one of the reasons why we did that was we want the sophisticated access to more capital. That proved prescient, like we needed that, especially as we started to get really, really big customers. So in the end, I don't think we would wanted to, but we were in a position where we really needed to raise a ton more money for our Series C. And it so happened that when Equinix approached us, you know, they have such an incredible balance sheet that they immediately saw what they could do with our platform against their balance sheet. So either we were going to be out for a pretty big slug of capital, probably a lot of debt and some venture, which would have been complicated, or we were we were going to get acquired by one of these capital-heavy businesses. <laughs> and so I can't say we we went to get sold, but we definitely were out mm-hmm. there looking for a partner with a large capital base. <laughs> um, so a little bit not normal is what I meant to do in terms of fundraising strategy, only because we knew that we were going to have to be with a larger pool of capital to really execute on our business vision. The raising the money part was like fascinating for me. And it's something that I've tried to counsel other founders on, right? <laughs> because raising money can be so, I don't know, it can be so weird. And I never really played well in the venture kind of like scene, as it were, like played the game, valuation this, trading stories with people. I don't do that. And I was building a product and figuring out what it could do. I found investors to be like, very, very different. I'm sure other founders deal with this as well, but probably ended up being 40 plus percent of my time was managing our investor base. And some of our best investors were angels who were domain experts and really, really went to bat for us and helped and mentored and told me the hard stuff, (laughs) you know, that I needed to hear um, and whatnot along the way. And some of our strategic investors were great. And then others were just, just not that great. They frankly, you're part of a portfolio. They ended up giving you more work than me giving them. And that's where I turned the tables after my Series A. And I started really using, it was actually at the counseling of Dan Doctor at Dell Tech Capital. He's like, you're not giving us enough to do. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, at the board meetings, don't give me the opportunity to give you a thousand things to go figure out. Because I will, because I'm just talking, I have ideas, whatever, you know, why don't you go find out about this market? Why don't you go figure out this thing? And he's like, you got to turn it around, Zach. And that's where I ended up using my management memos. And I'd send those every month. And then we have our quarterly board meeting where I would get in and the first five minutes would be, have you all read the management memos? Because if so, you already know what happened this quarter. So we don't need to go over that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about all that bullseye stuff, where we need to go, why this, whatever. And the second thing we're going to talk about is all the stuff that you guys can do for me. Because I'm really busy. And so I need hiring, I need customers, I need strategic help, I need to get a relationship with that person. And you could really tell which investors stepped up based upon who took those tasks. I consider them an extension of our of our staff. Like you're unpaid, well, not exactly unpaid. You're gonna you're taking a big <laughs> the most expensive salary from me. You get paid eventually. Yeah, you're gonna pay. And so how do I leverage you? And that was a really interesting angle that I took on investors. And I think that founders are so good founders, especially who are good, you know, operators and executors is diamonds in the rough, man. It's hard to find good founders. There are a lot of investors, frankly. Now, finding the investors that believe in your vision and align to those same things that employees do so that you're not sitting in board meetings like, 
does this tie back to the why? Are we are we all here for this the right reasons? Because if the why is just make money, like it's probably going to be a tough gig. But if the why is like we believe in this thing and that we all think that this is really important, yeah. Well, then we'll get through all this stuff together. And I got work for you to do, man, because <laughs> I need all all the help I can get. I like that. So finding your investors and in, in sorting through to find the right ones, and then like leaning in there and making sure that you can give them give them the work. That's super important because I think a lot of founders feel under the thumb of their investors oftentimes, you know, or maybe that's not the case. Maybe that was only how I felt, but I think some of, some of the founders I work with do feel that way. It's a mixed experience out there for sure. Change it, you know, if you can. It's still your job to change it, by the way. Yeah. Which means you have to provide the information. Like in any other asynchronous model, people are very, very busy. And so if you're in a business as a founder, you've got a bajillion things that, that are data points for you. You know exactly what's going on. You're spending all your time worrying about the bare metal dedicated computer market or the monitoring observability business, right? They're not. And so you need to be able to provide good, consistent, open communication so that when they show up for that board meeting or when you do call them for your monthly one-on-one, that they can actually lend value to you. And you can ask them to do stuff and they have context. Otherwise, it's like, hey, let's catch up. How's how, how's things? Mm-hmm. So being more purposeful about that, I think, makes a big difference. These monthly memos yeah. and the to-dos, I'm curious on specifics. Like, What were some specifics you would put into those monthly memos that would get them up to speed easier so that you can not waste that time? And then when you gave them things to do, what are some specifics to your case that you gave them to do? Like you mentioned contact with X, Y, or Z. Did you leverage them for connections? Did you say, well, go to work for me and get me in touch with this person because we need a partner in this area? Is that an example? Yeah. So first and foremost, from a um, from the memo standpoint, like I kind of recognize that although this is something that I spend my whole life doing, like I would send this to not only all of our investors, all of our employees, but also all of our constituents. Let me call them influential fans. So I knew people like I was being pretty transparent. I knew some people shared it around of like, okay, you might see our numbers. That's okay, whatever. But I, it was like circle of trust kind of thing. Let's put it that way. But in this memo, I kind of realized that nobody can spend more than five minutes reading this stuff. In fact, they're probably going to read it like when they drink their coffee in the morning on their iPhone or like sitting on the bus or doing whatever, which is totally cool. So I went for just like I did in, in our monthly newsletter that we send to 35,000 people at, at Metal, no crap. Craft, not crap, is our rule. And so craft it out, succinct it down, exec summary, each department, bing, 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 same model every time so they know what to expect because like certain people just want to look at sales. So they like give them the same thing. Like they're going to flip to page two and it's cool. Other people want to know about product. Other people want to know about what's going on in the industry. And so what we did is we just did that in a very formulaic way, never more than a page per major department or sub you know area. So that they could just read it, get the key bullet points, whatever, and move along. Usually I'd get like two or three people out of the 30 or so that I would send it to who would immediately write back with like, oh, I didn't know that you're working on a partnership with Red Hat. We were investors in Red Hats as Battery Ventures or whatever. Like, I know that guy over there. Let me hook, connect you with the product manager for that thing. Awesome. I didn't even know that you knew that. Would have never come up. Wow. Yeah. High five, right? Opportunity for serendipity. Yeah. Increased serendipity. Totally. So follow those things, get it out, you know, be repetitive in that motion. That really helped. 
And then when it came around to our board meetings, or like I was never shy about asking our investors or, or anybody for favors. Like, I need your help. The things that worked best for like SoftBank was they were buying so many companies and they were investing through Vision Fund. And like, I was like, I want to meet with the head of engineering from pretty much any unicorn that you invest with. So that's what I put my team on. Like, I, I don't want to sell them. I just want to talk to them. Where are they going? How are they thinking? What's going on? Like, I just want 30 minutes with Tokopedia. I just want 30 minutes with Uber. I just want 30 minutes with, that's what I use SoftBank for. For Dell, you would think it would end up being strategic. It was actually more like personal advice. Dan, who's over there, became a really good friend of mine. And he was one of the guys who would like do real talk with Zach. Like, hey, Zach, I love you and everything. But like, dude, you're being so stupid on this. Stop it. I'm like, no, 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 it's really going to work. He's like, dude, I'm telling you, this is, you're going to learn to react this. Like, uh, you call me back in two weeks after you fail, and like, I'm, we're going to work on it together. And so that was more like a, a parent relationship or like, you know, real talk. And so I'd always be the most vulnerable with Dan, right? It was like, hey, Dan, like, what do you think about this? Right. And then different other investors like Alex at Battery Ventures, he was just so knowledgeable on software and networking. That's what I use him for, like engineering advice and can I connect you with my head of engineering? We're struggling with this problem. And he would like know people about those things. So, I mean, like anything, like you had to use people to ward their strengths. Yeah. It seems, I don't want to say easy, logical, you know, like, yeah, for sure. That's the way you do it, Zach. But like, this is not, <laughs> this is all like new to some degree for me. Like, were you the person that would systematically write these monthlies where you know, was it one person? Was it you? Did you have a- Oh, we team edited them. Okay. So we, we were we were super boring. We would take the last month, copy it in Google Docs, make a copy, change the title. And we do that on the first of the month. So like, I still do it, by the way. It's still muscle. I still do it at Equinix today. So on the first of the month, I copied it. And then you go through and you highlight the sections. Each person has their own section, which was mainly my key reports. It will only take you five minutes to write. Because I just want it, well, it's fresh in your mind what happened this month, right? And give me the key things and the key points and we'll fill in the numbers. And then we were close our books or get our key metrics by like the 10th. You updated, I do a read through. Jacob is a better editor than me. So he always like spices it up and condenses and gets rid of all my fluff. Because I usually have fluff because I talk too much. And so he's like, nope, you can say that in one sentence. So he edits it. Much easier to edit other people's stuff than to write it from what I've found. So he edited it down and then set it up. That was it. So it was very formulated. The idea was like, you can do that in less than an hour. And at Equinix, it's funny because I reinstituted, we stopped for a while because Equinix is like, has a different way of reporting and like whatever. And we had some new people on our management team because we're kind of like a small business unit, like a business unit within Equinix. So finally, like a year ago, I was like, you know what? We just really need to start our memos again because there's too many people who want to have meetings about all this stuff and then we don't they don't have any context and they don't know how to help this is a ten thousand person company like i don't talk to the market manager in australia very often but i want his help <laughs> and yet we're not doing him any favors like to make him go and learn all this stuff about us to find out what we're doing to find out if he can help. So we restarted the memos. And at first people were like, oh, it's gonna take a lot of this other TPS report. <laughs> like we're gonna have to do another report. I was like, no, 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 trust me. This isn't gonna waste your time. And so the idea is like you should be able to, most people get their section done in like 15 minutes. Hmm. Doesn't take that long. Yeah. There's like six people who edit it. I do it once over, we send it out. It is like the most valuable thing we do every month now. I mean, sorry, that's probably an overstatement. 
is one of the more valuable communication tools. <laughs> what I love though is that it it's uh it's this transparency, this ability to sort of like share which where you've been, you know, your past tense roadmap. Yeah. And so if you want to leverage the knowledge base or the connections of the market manager in Australia, can give them some context. Well, you might have to do a lot more, like you said, context building for them when you could just say, you know what? If you just read the last three months of these memos, which will take you probably 10 minutes to glean over coffee, then we meet and you've got, you're asking me questions versus me, you know, kind of giving you a 20 minute spiel of where we've been. You, you know, yeah. you know what our challenges are, you know what the bigger Equinix story is already. So, you know, all those details, but just, you can specifically help me with, metal related things. And if you as a founder like aren't good at doing that, find somebody and make them your internal reporter. Could you just write the story of XYZ startup every month? Mm. Just write the article, something that people want to read. And that will allow you, I think internally to get consensus, but this oh man, leveraging your investors and your and your fans. Like think about your family members or your friends or your your colleagues that you used to work with or other people who might like really want to help you, but they don't have time to learn everything. You can't get a beer and get a whole download on what's been going on in the machine learning space for the past year. So like your friend at Facebook can help you out. So I think finding a good way to do that, some people maybe have a blog, some people do this. This for me was a better mechanism, but yeah. time saver. That's a leverage tool. How about that? Because otherwise yeah. I found myself like spending so much time just explaining to my investors what the hell's been going on. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Did you read my memo? I'm like, no. I'm like, well, read it and then we'll talk. <laughs> uh, that's so awesome. I love that demeanor. That's cool. RTFM, man. Yeah. Don't waste my time here. <laughs> I am busy. You want me like building value for you, right? Okay, cool. Then I need to go back to do this stuff. <laughs> do you want to talk more about this kind of stuff? Or do you want to dig into like direction of the company product? Like what would be, what would be the most fun for you to talk about for the next however long? I think I'd love to cover in the few minutes we got, like I'd love to talk about the future of it all, right? Because that's been a f super fun ride for me. Like, so dot, 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 fast forward, right? We're at Equinix. 2021 happens, like, oh my God, right? And global pandemic, yada, yada, the internet continues to grow. Everybody's using Roblox, like Zoom is everywhere. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. I think there's like two awesome things that have happened. Number one, in, like, in our industry, like even big companies who were, I'm going to say it on the fence related to like remote culture and like all that stuff, remote work, totally fine now, right? All that is good. The world is flat, as you mentioned earlier, right? Like that's really interesting because it's causing a whole bunch of cultural things that I think like software developers in particular are really good at this, which is asynchronous communication. You got a lot of tools around asynchronous. You got mailing lists, you've got GitHub, you got issues, you got chat when you need it through Slack or Discord or IRC or whatever, but you have like a bunch of different communication modalities and you kind of know how to use them because it's ingrained in like the work that you do called like, I will issue pull request and then somebody will review it. We won't have to have a Zoom meeting for you to review my pull request. You will do it and it is fine because you get notified and then do it after dinner and it's all good. Well, a big portion of work right now is going through that transition without the same institutional tooling and like whatever, such as like, how do we share the context of information when we're not in the same building all the time? You know, and so I see that happening. I think it's fascinating time, fascinating opportunity. And I, I'm certainly enjoying my role at Equinix, helping to kind of invent new ways in a bigger company, like 13,000 people is a lot of people to share context with. And so how, how to go through and, and deal with that kind of 
global and we are a global company. So dealing with that, but from a product standpoint, the other big thing that happened is like every single one of our enterprise customers, we have around 11,000 enterprise customers is like put the gas pedal on like digital transformation and digital transformation to me was always such a buzzword. I was like, ah, oh, whatever. That's just, just like consulting speak. But actually, I think it's pretty true. Right? Is it really? It's real, right? Like companies going through and seeing technology as a weapon in their business. Like how can they use technology to win their market, defend their market, you know, accelerate their market, deal with the problems of COVID in healthcare, remote ordering for Taco Bell. Like, I don't know, like fat is a tech problem which most every industry is having, right? So mm -hmm. just seeing that accelerate just represents this huge opportunity, I think. Where I'm most focused on it is, and where I'm super proud to be working at Equinix, is that championed by our CEO, Charles, we have a very, very strong commitment to sustainability. And so our kind of mission is to, like, in the end, create a better planet, basically, as part of what we do. And that in a data center world and technology world is, it's been like removed from people's direct view. Like I'm just doing it in the cloud, you know, which is burning diesel and like massive air conditioners and billions of gallons of water and like tons of toxic chemicals called computers to do what? To do what we do of like being on a Zoom. You know, this is an incredibly carbon intensive part of our world that is generally invisible to most people. And I think part of that has to do my personal viewpoint on sustainability beyond where we've made 2030 targets to um, be carbon neutral. We already do almost 100% of our power renewable. But if you think the rest of our kind of like business, the huge amounts of opportunity and waste to become net zero, right, from a science target standpoint, what I think we can do at Equinix and why I'm here and what I'm most excited about with like my role in Equinix Metal, which is to put the computers in the data center. Number one, we can do that way more efficiently. So I'm part of a foundation, a Linux foundation, a project called Open19, where we're pushing forward a, a standard throughout our industry for liquid cooling. So we can have blind mate connectivity for liquid cooling at the back of computers. So we can dramatically lower the PUE, remove the wastewater, get to kind of zero carbon data centers, which is incredibly important. And so number one, just making the use of hardware, no matter what it is, no matter where it is, sustainable from that perspective. And number two is helping the major technology part providers in the world like OEM, such as Dell, or silicon partners such as Intel or NVIDIA, go from a business model where they only made money when they sold you more chips or sold you more servers, which is by itself not a very sustainable business, right? to them making money when you got outcomes or use the thing, like helping the biggest technology companies in the world move to as a service will actually align. So that instead of us having to TikTok you and sell you new chips every two years, well, why couldn't we just sell you on technology, which had full recycling and we wanted you to use it for longer because that was the aligned outcome between Intel and Dell and Equinix and you. And that to me is like a fascinating problem space. Not only can we make the operating of technology sustainable, we can make the business model of technology sustainable. And a lot of the clouds have made meaningful impact on there. Like they've moved it far because they are paid for usage and subscription of their services, which aligns a big portion of the kind of industry towards that. But I think still think when you think about like the OEMs, the hardware companies, they're still like in the business of shipping you more stuff. And I think that has to change. 
and we have to align it so it's circular so we can recycle because I, I awesome speech uh, two years ago at our ifx conference from this hardware reclamation company i forgot the name it renew so cool and they basically did an analysis of the energy in the lifetime of a server and we all focus on like the power you plug it into or the air conditioners the pue right that's only about 20% of the energy of the entire, like you run that thing for five years, that's only 20% of the energy of the server's life. 70% of it is making the server. Supply chain, silicon, all that stuff. 70% of the energy, huge. And 10% is getting rid of the server. Destruction, recycle, shipments, whatever. So if we just work on improving the 20% of the PUE, like we're just rounding on this thing. We got to work on the 70% of like, we have to make new servers all the time. And the 10% of, oh my God, we have to recycle this thing and make that much more circular. Hmm. To me, that is like a game changer, not only in terms of allowing for new technology to come to market, but allowing it to happen in a way that's sustainable for our planet. To me, that's what I'm excited about. Give me a scenario then how that, how you make that more effective than with say an NVIDIA or Intel or even, you know, any other chip manufacturer how do they still get paid despite lack of future sales of new chips, for example? Like, how do you incentivize longevity? Well, instead of selling you a A30 <laughs> NVIDIA card, what if they got paid when you used it? What if they got paid when you had outcomes from it, like your models were trained? Mm. Per usage billing, essentially. Yeah, some sort of alignment. So that way, like, hey, it makes sense for us to have you continue to use that thing. It makes sense for them to continue to optimize code against the five-year-old card. Yeah. Which I does, doesn't make sense for them to do it because they're like, you know what I should is only optimize the new one so I can sell more of the new one. And right now, I think there's a whole just like, if you want to get into like the military industrial complex, there's like the silicon industrial complex, which is like, yeah, I bet. we have to TikTok you so that way you can like, well, I can sell you another chip because like, I spent a lot of money on this fab and we have to move you to the new one. That's got to happen. Otherwise, we can't recoup our bajillions of dollars of R&D. And you want the innovation, right? You want the innovation in the right place. I like this model because it focuses them when you shift this model. It's going to probably take a while to transition to it, too. Hopefully not. Maybe now with things being so compressed with remote and a lot of things that were before 10 years of a transition I think COVID really transitioned a lot of people into remote world super fast. So a lot of things are being compressed. But if they could innovate, focus on the innovation versus the sales models of selling you more and just focus on the innovation, that would be probably a game changer for just the future. I think it would be like aligning outcomes with the, like, the people who create most of the technology, silicon, and the people who use that technology to create things for our world. Like aligning those two things would be good. They are not currently aligned for most companies. They're aligned for cloud companies who often create their own technology mm -hmm. and also create their own services, which is really cool for a couple of hyperscalers and not really as cool for everybody else. And I personally believe that innovation is messy and it means thousands of people have to have the ability to change the world. And we can't use, I don't believe that my kids are going to like give up on technology and become Luddites and move to the woods. And like, you know, I don't believe that. I think we got to lean in harder right? And we have to find more sustainable ways of creating the outcomes that we want. It's not going to go away. It's not going to go away, right? The technological advancements, the innovations, whether it's literal TikTok or something, you know, <laughs> that, that changes the world in different ways. Not yeah. that it doesn't change the world, but what might be just simply a fun or entertaining application to yeah. say a world change application like 
a machine learning model that understands cancer differently that could predict outcomes or something like that. You know what I mean? Sure. I don't know. We're all kind of living through some pretty crazy technological innovations right now called like mRNA COVID vaccines and whatnot, right? Like Exactly. So, okay, there, there are these amazing things that happen with technology, but right now, like the business models aren't fully aligned. And then we would see, I hope, we would see things like, wow, we should get rid of packaging. Have you ever seen, like, have you ever unracked servers in a data center? You know how much crap we throw out? All of it. Like a lot. You want new, you want fresh. It's got to be pretty. And then we like do so much stuff within a rack, like the sheet metal and the cables, which we throw out all of those because we need new servers because they move the power supplies from the left to the right. Wow. Yeah. You know, I'm like, oh my God. Right. I don't want to do that. Right. Like think how much waste we create. Like, so there's like all kinds of like, the, like we haven't even touched the surface on this stuff. Right. And so I'm super interested. I wish we had more time to talk about this because I'm actually super interested in like the recyclability of this stuff because I mean, just to give you a a silly example in comparison, I take out my trash, right? I'm the one who fills the recyclable bin. You're like, wow, that's a lot of trash. And it's my recyclables <laughs> are way bigger than my trash. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm like diehard about it. Now, some people say it's a waste of time. I sure hope it's not. But, you know, I care enough to like, now I'm super aware of like packaging and the things I see day to day. Sure. And then this is your day to day, like racking and unracking servers. There's a lot of waste. And what's the cool thing about moving to cloud? or cloud-operated models, where people are no longer just grabbing computers and putting them in their corporate data centers. Now we have actually very, very well-known places throughout the world where these things go. Like It's not just randomly showing up anywhere. It's Intel technology showing up at Equinix Global Data Centers is a thing, right? And we can make that circular. We can make it zero waste, actually. And we've even done work on our data centers where we make it negative. We capture all the heat and we turn it back into geothermal energy or sell it back to municipal cities. Like we're just right now exhausting all that stuff just to get rid of it, wasting water through evaporative cooling. There are so many cooler ways that we can take what we do, which is very wasteful right now, and turn it into a net positive for society. But we have to align the business models of the forces. Otherwise, we can be the Greenpeace boat driving around the data center and like being like, no, don't do it that way. Or we can create a better way for everybody to make outcomes and money, frankly, like economic. And I think that if we get those two things aligned, and that's what I'm most passionate about at Equinix is like world's largest data center company where tons of things of the internet happen, global distribution in 64 markets. And I'm the guy trying to put computers in them. If we can make computers go better as an industry, as a team, that's going to be great for our world. I was going to say, who better than Equinix? But can you, you touched a little bit on size. Can you give her a wider spectrum? I know you mentioned employee count, but global. Yeah. Give us specific on like countries, data center numbers, stuff like that. Yeah. Just to kind of give the audience a context of like how you're poised to, to make this change or enable it in some way. Yeah. So we've been going since 1998. Jay Adelson started the business as the equality in the internet exchange, Equinix. Mm -hmm. And we were a neutral place for the internet at the time to meet, which was the content side and the telecom side, right? And uh, we've kind of continued that. And now at this point we have, I think it's about 230 data centers, maybe 50 under construction right now. Globally, we're in 64 markets around the world, largest provider in every single region of the world at this point, everywhere from Sao Paulo to Mexico City to Warsaw to Brisbane to Osaka. Like it's a pretty massive global platform, not only of data centers, but of interconnection. And that's really the the reason why people come to Equinix is to interconnect. We helped Amazon create Direct Connect. We operate the vast majority of cloud on-ramps and over 400,000 interconnections between our customers to allow them to move traffic 
cheaper and faster, more economically between each other. And so our whole business model is built around creating more of the network effect. And so it's a really, really interesting opportunity, a really interesting business that sits in between all the clouds and all the things and allows the, the kind of the magic of our customers to happen in a neutral way. I think like any business, we, we've had an incredible ride. It's been going great. And I think you can kind of look at our public side and it looks really good. But we too are undergoing some big shifts, right? As people want to go to the data center less, and we're going to do more of that for them by automating it. As you know, our OEM partners move to as a service businesses, as climate change becomes a central part of what we do. It's every RFP that we field now, the number one thing from large enterprise customers is help me meet my science targets, mm. which is awesome. A year ago, that wasn't the case. Now it's everywhere. It's awesome. Yeah. But we have that increased burden and, and responsibility, I think, to um, invest. And even in certain places like Singapore, unless you can create a carbon neutral data center, that means generating your own power in a green way as well, like green carbon, you can't build another data center in Singapore. They are not issuing new permits. Mm-hmm. You know, so things like that are going to be the next phase for all of us to do in our industry challenge. But um, Equinix is well poised and great leadership, you know, really forward thinking and with a strong amount of integrity and, and sense of community and whatnot. So pretty cool. I think it's wild to say seven years ago, you were thinking about what could be. And now <laughs> here you are. It was a really good beer. Yeah. It was a really good beer while I was drinking this. <laughs> I bet. I mean, like, I just think about that. Like, that's why I love the, I guess, the journey of founders, because you think one day what could be, and then you make it. And then now you're in a position acquired by the behemoth of places that Packet could have become, you know, like yeah. you could have acquired a Series C and kept going down that route. Where would you be? Not that it's a wrong route. No, I feel very fortunate. I, I'm, uh, you know, we're not only was it a good economic outcome for all the, you know, people and whatnot who came along the way and the investors, but I think it's the right fit. You know, you don't get that very often where you're like, wow, that's the place where we should be. And maybe we can end it on a, on a good note, but I think it was five years ago, five years ago. Charles wasn't yet CEO, but I met with him over something um, because we had known each other a little bit through the industry. I was like, one day you should buy us. (laughs) And at the time, it was just like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, well, you know, automating computers and data centers. And it was kind of like, "Uh, yeah, no, that's not what we do. And then, you know, five years later, that was just so aligned that our business evolved and their business evolved to the point where it was like, wow, you know, what we should do together is this. So that's kind of cool. That's super cool. I know we're probably right at the at moment of our time, but my last question for you is just a good tease, I suppose. Is there anything on the horizon that you haven't mentioned or I know you talked about a lot of the climate change stuff that you're really enacting, you know, the efficiency of data centers and compute and whatnot. What else is on the horizon for you, for Equinix, for Equinix Metal in particular that not many people know about? It could be a conference coming up, could be anything, you know, who knows why, but what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, well, I'm going to not not dive into forward-looking statements, um, but I think we're going to have some pretty exciting stuff making our platform even more accessible. We've got a lot of cool things that we do, um, networking services, interconnection, global access to our NFVs, metal, our data centers. And I think one of the things you'll see Equinix start doing is making all that stuff way more consumable, way easier for more companies to access. So I'm super excited about about that and what 2022 has to come. And then the other thing is like, if you're a hardware nerd, Equinix is going to be a great place to hang out. We're going to have some really awesome go-to-markets for very, very interesting hardware. So stay tuned if you like the hardware. All calling all gamers. Mm-hmm. Very cool. 
Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to talk about in the close? Anything left that uh, is left unsaid? Well, for all you founders out there, I mean, I just celebrated my wedding anniversary with my my wife yesterday. She's still uh, still with me. There's always a secret partner in every well, in many startups, you know, and that partner is often your family, right? And for me, that's been just an incredible support system. I think it's the unsung here in most startups or businesses is the person who or the people, my kids and whatnot, who have helped me do what I do, right? And really invest in the things that I love by the support system. So I'm sure other founders have the same setups or are intimate with that, but can't say that stuff enough. I agree. My wife is for sure my partner in everything I do, and I couldn't do without her. Amen. So thankful. Yeah. All right, Adam, it's been great talking. This is fun. We should do it more often, but maybe in a noisy data center. (laughs) I would love that, actually. I would love to tour a data center. It would be so cool. Let's do it. I haven't done one, a tour of a data center, probably like 15 years at least. So it's been too long and things have changed quite a bit. I'll meet you in Dallas. We got some good data centers there. Let's do it. Thanks, Zach. (laughs) All right, Adam. All right, that's it for this episode of Founders Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Of course, thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And thank you to you in advance. If you love this show, do us a favor. Word of mouth is by far the best way for us to grow our shows. Tell a friend. We'd love to have them as a listener. All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time.